Today's episode is sponsored by FACS. FACS serves over 4,000 Catholic schools with financial management tools, admission solutions, and a student information and learning management system. In addition, FACS Education Solutions provides AIMS and ESSA consulting and professional development opportunities for students, leaders, and educators. They are eagerly supporting Catholic schools with a number of resources to help facilitate data practices and infrastructure. FACS is a proud sponsor of the Catholic Leadership Summit in Salt Lake City and is excited to sponsor this NCA podcast with our keynote speaker, Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Greetings. Thank you for joining the NCA podcast. I'm Kathy Mears. And today my ho- my my guest is Timothy O'Malley. Um, Tim, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm so glad that you said that you would join us. Oh, yeah, it's great to be here with you. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, I live in uh, Granger, Indiana, near South Bend, Indiana, where I teach at the University of Notre Dame, um, and have administrative responsibilities. So I teach theology, uh, my areas are liturgy and sacraments. My um, my particular sort of administrative roles, uh, I do things in catechetics also, I should say. So um, administratively, I direct our online education at Notre Dame uh, for the McGrath Institute for Church Life. We do theological education for parishes and schools and dioceses throughout the United States. Uh, and then I also am the academic director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. And so uh, more importantly, I suppose, for my actual life is uh, I'm married, uh, I'm almost 16 years of marriage coming up. And I have two kids, eight and four, who are at home as I'm recording this. So at any moment, we could hear screaming. That's okay. That uh, I, that's that's just fine. We we like children. The other thing is, I will celebrate forty three years of marriage next week. So um, I have you beat by a few, but you'll yeah, get there. Yeah, a few. If you, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, I I wonder if my spouse sometimes hopes so, but I hope so. <laughs> You you will. And um, just so our listeners know, Tim and I attempted to have dinner in preparation for this podcast and just to, to talk. And um, we were interrupted by a fire at the restaurant. So um, it's the first time that's ever happened to me, but we had to evacuate the building. So um, dinner didn't really happen. So I owe you. Oh, no problem. It was a very dramatic event. <laughs> it was. It was. So, yeah, I'm like, we, we probably should go because we're going to get backed in by the fire trucks. And <laughs> so that's almost happened to you. It did. Yeah. Yeah. No, the fire truck left and we left and the building was fine. Just to let everyone know, I looked it up the next day and they were open on Thursday afternoon. So it was not a, a terrible fire. No, I think they're shut down for a day. So that, that wasn't horrible at all. So, but it, it is different when you're in a restaurant, just sitting there and the waiter, waiters and waitresses say, um, you need to evacuate. So we yes. did. <laughs> we're very compliant people. So we did. Um, so you're at the University of Notre Dame, one of the most beautiful campuses that I've ever seen in my life. And um, it's a very holy place. When did you become interested in theology and studying it and now teaching it? And how did you end up at Notre Dame? Yeah, so your listeners uh, may be interested to know that uh, here I am speaking to those who work in Catholic schools. And I actually had never been in a Catholic school setting 
um, until I went to the University of Notre Dame. I grew up in East Tennessee, and there were very few Catholic schools in East Tennessee. It was under 2% Catholic. And uh, but we had great parish youth ministry, so I became very interested in theological questions. So I began to read uh, theology all by myself, uh, and I thought I potentially could have a vocation to the priesthood. So um, I found out about a program at Notre Dame that helped undergraduates discern the priesthood, and I came up to Notre Dame, uh, and I said, okay, this is where I'm going to go. And so I, I entered the undergraduate seminary at Notre Dame for the Congregation of Holy Cross, uh, and... I entered interested in uh, political science, right? I've always been interested in politics, uh, but I had a sort of transformative encounter with the person who's now my boss, John Cavadini. Uh, he was my first year theology professor. And I think it was like reading these books that I had heard about, that I had encountered in footnotes uh, as I was a nerd on my public school bus, I should say, reading theology. Uh, I suddenly encountered it. and. Um, it transformed my life. And so from there, I just began to study theology as much as possible. I had mentors and teachers who helped me along, John Cavadini, Joseph Warakow, um, uh, Max Johnson at the University of Notre Dame. These figures sort of helped direct my thought. And, um, you know, I, I always remember my conversation. It helps me think a lot about the importance of being a teacher. Uh, in an advising meeting, one of my advisors, Joseph Warakow, said, I hope one day you're thinking about graduate study. And I remember the day, I remember the time, I remember the place, and it really did, like, I, I hadn't thought about it. I was a first-generation college student. I didn't even know what graduate study was. And yet, suddenly I found, like, wow, this is what I want to do. So um, that's, you know, the short version of the story. I then um, left the undergraduate seminary. I met my spouse-to-be before I entered major seminary, and then I uh, just continued on, head off to Boston College to do further studies in theology and education. So you studied at two of the the largest, not the largest, DePaul is the largest, but two of the larger Catholic universities in the United States. And how did that impact your life? How did that change you as a person? Not, not obviously it gave you your career and it gave you what you wanted to do, but how did it impact you as a person? I also often wonder if somebody who reads theology all the time, does it does it become more than just a study of a subject? I would hope it does, but how does that work? Yeah, um, well, I'd say it changed everything for me. Um, you know, it, it was weird growing up as a Southern Catholic. I didn't know that there were Catholics. I remember the first days I was at the University of Notre Dame, I kept asking people if they were Catholic, and then it became clear that everyone was Catholic, or at least were baptized Catholic once upon a time. So I stopped asking the question, I think it gave me a sense of what excellence consists of. Um, an excellent Catholic education bestowed to me a vision of what I could be. Um, I was lazy as a student. Uh, I was smart, but lazy. And uh, so in high school, for example, I never studied. Uh, I didn't really do much work at all. I kind of just did what I needed to to get by um, and was good at it. At Notre Dame, I kind of understood, oh, this is what excellence consists of. and actually God bestowed me an intellect and therefore I should employ this intellect with as much capacity, discipline, prayerfulness, spiritual formation as possible. And so Boston College and Notre Dame each proposed that to me. I think especially at Boston College, I discovered, I think, a better integration of study and spiritual life. The uh, Jesuit charism 
of the place, the manner in which um, everything was sort of reflected upon, in which thinking and understanding and writing were all part of the spiritual life, simply became part of my own reflection. So, so to answer your last point, yeah, I, I read theology all day. I write about theology. But to me, it's part of my spiritual practice uh, as a person. Um, it's how I um, glorify God in the words of St. Saint, Saint Ignatius, right? Ever great giving greater glory to God through the work that I do, uh, I see as integral to, to, to my religious vocation as a, a married person, as a baptized faithful Catholic. That is a wonderful answer. Thank you. And I love the idea that Catholic education gave you a vision for yourself and for Catholic school teachers. I mean, that's what we're called to do is to help children see the vision, the potential within them. And so I, I'm happy that Notre Dame and Boston College provided that for you. And so that you could say that to everybody today, because I think that is really an important thought. And um, I would agree that there's those differences between the two universities, having lived in Boston and worked with some with Boston College people and having worked some, with some with um, Notre Dame people. It's they're both great places and they both serve great purposes. But there, there are some differences there. Except in football, I should interrupt and say, <laughs> except in true. football, uh, Notre Dame is obviously the superior institution, just to let everyone know that where my where my affections lie. There you go. I was at that Notre Dame Boston College game at Fenway Park. It was a good one. Um, if you were a Notre Dame fan. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the other thing you said, someone tapped you on the shoulder and said that I hope you do this in graduate study. That's one of my things in life is that we should tap people on the shoulder and say, I think you'd be a good teacher. Or I think you'd be a good priest or a good sister or whatever. I, I think as adults, as educators, we need to do that more often. So I thank you for saying that too, because I think it makes a difference when teachers say and open up possibilities to students. When we tap them on the shoulder and say, you know what, you have a gift in this area, you might want to use it. I think that's a good thing for us to do. So you are a very prolific writer. You're young and yet you've written, I don't know, three, four or five books, something like that. Um, how do you choose what you're going to write about? Yeah, so sometimes people just ask me to write on things. That's the easiest thing. It's if someone just says, I need you to write on this thing. Um, but on the other hand, I think I choose it uh, for two things. Um, I'm very interested in, I got a degree in theology and education, So, but my interest was in early church stuff, patristics, liturgy, and sacraments, particularly in the early church. I did my dissertation on St. Augustine, and I learned a lot about uh, how to think about writing and thinking from St. Augustine. Um, he has sermons that are written in the most simple Latin as possible, and he has sort of lengthy books that are written that, that really were written for the, the sort of philosophers of his day. Uh, in communication with them. And so I make my decisions uh, kind of like Augustine does. Um, what are the issues of the day that need to be dealt with? Sometimes they're doctrinal, sometimes they're pastoral, sometimes they're, uh, you know, somebody says to me, uh, you, you know, even my first book, which is like Liturgy and the New Evangelization, a professor at CUA said, a book needs to be written on this topic, so I'm going to. Uh, but as far as um, writing the book and how I go about the writing, or, or I, I should say choosing, I think I choose what's an urgent pastoral need. And then I take that pastoral need and I draw from the whole riches of my own theological education to answer that. Um, I think pastoral theology has gotten a bad, uh, pastoral theology or, or what I sometimes call catechetical theology has gotten a bad rap. It's perceived to be uh, too simple, too easy. 
But I think helping people understand the richness of the full tradition in a way that resonates with their lives is just a task that I have. So I, so I, I always think about what are the needs of the church? What are the needs of the world? And how can the great riches of Catholicism offer something for us to think through this today? I think that's lovely. And I think that's probably right why you wrote your book, um, Real Presence. And I, I think that it is, um, in that book, I find you to be a teacher. I don't know if that's what you were going for, but why don't you talk about that a little bit? What were you trying to accomplish? What, who did you think was your audience for that book? And I'll see if it agrees with what I thought. Yeah. So I am a teacher. I, I, well, first of all, when I write, I actually talk to myself. It's a, it's a very dangerous thing uh, because I'm perpetually talking to myself in public spaces or wherever I'm writing, but I write as a teacher. Uh, the audience for the book are those I've, in some sense, taught over the years, particularly undergraduates, not only undergraduates, but they're people who had questions, right? They had questions, only natural questions. I love a good question in the theological classroom. I think sometimes people uh, shy away from them, but this doesn't make sense. I like a good question anywhere. I love oh, questions. They're the best. They're the best. They mean Absolutely. someone's interested. Um, and so... After years of getting questions, why this, why that? Um, I wanted to write this book that said like, well, what is real presence? And what is transubstantiation? And why does it matter to you? And so the audience was for me, always my student who stood in front of me and said, like, why does this matter? I don't understand this. Should I even care about it? Um, I should say, I love to teach the apathetic and angry. It's my favorite group of students to teach um, because there's energy there that I can actually work with. And so. Almost any book I write like this, I have the, my students in mind like this. I, I that that's good to know because one of the things that I th was thinking about was w with the book was: Do you think people want to believe in the real presence, or do you think Catholics sometimes are just comfortable saying, "I'm happy with it being a symbol. I'm good." Um. Yeah, I think so. I have some critiques of the Pew study, which often says that real presence isn't really believed in. I think a lot of Catholics believe in real presence. Uh, they may not uh, be able to articulate it. So my institute, the McGrath Institute for Church Life, we're going to run a study with Cara to really figure out what, what U.S. Catholics believe relative to real presence. Um, but I think many people already do, right? Why would you go to mass, uh, which is often full of, uh, no offense to any priests who are listening, but sometimes homilies aren't great or the music isn't wonderful. Like, what are you showing up there for? And why are our parishes, like, why do people go? So there must be some reason that they're going beyond sort of just a desire to be with one another. Um, I think as far as, um, do people want to believe or know more about it? Not always. I, I think one of our dangers as U.S. Catholics is that we don't often ask those questions that you and I love. Uh, we don't ask the deeper questions. So we remain kind of stuck on just the one or two things we know, our devotional life. But, but to really sort of wonder at something, to understand it, um, there's something about U.S. Catholic life that I worry about is that we don't often love study. Can we reintegrate study and spiritual life? Um, and if we do that, then I think people do want to know. And especially if you frame these doctrines, as I tried in this book, as a way that opens up the imagination, that opens up new ways of living, new sources of joy and wisdom in your life. I like that. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as you know, I've the Pew study, my, my issue with it is 
We don't know what Catholics were thinking 75 years ago. We don't know if they believed in their own presence or not because we didn't ask them. But I think the critiques may be right. Are What are we talking about here? Could we define that? And I think that, so I'm glad you're going to do further study because I think if we know what we're really talking about, then we might really understand the answers we're given. That's right. I think that clarification would be good. So you've also written about disaffiliation. You put uh, out an article earlier this summer about disaffiliation in the church, and you're going to be talking about it in NCA's Catholic Leadership Summit, um, which is going to happen in October. So what do you think are the easiest things a Catholic school teacher or a Catholic school in general can do to help people to reconnect to the church and to their faith? What can we do as people who are faith-filled, who are going to mass who are engaged in our parishes, how can we help others to, to come back or to re-engage? Yeah. So I think, um, one of the causes of disaffiliation is a distrust of institutions and that distrust of institutions of belonging to any institution is prevalent so often in American life as a whole, we distrust the church, educational institutions, Congress, journalism, right? There's a sort of radical distrust. And therefore, I think the most important thing that a Catholic school can do is to rebuild a love of the church. And here, I don't mean a naive love of the church, right? Um, that the church has always acted in her ministers and in her lay faithful with, with perfect virtue. That's Pollyannish and silly. Um, history tells us otherwise. Rather, that the church offers us something key to life, right? It offers us um, a proposal, a meaning that we could not construct by ourselves. The church offers the sacraments that take every dimension of our human life, no matter how mundane, and lift it up to Christ, transforming it, making it almost divine. The church is a place of communion. Right In an age where polarization is evident, and including, I should say, in the church, we're called to bring all men and women together to uh, the peaceful adoration uh, of the God who is love, right? This is what we have to propose. And there has to be, you know, if a Catholic school is to do this, the teachers must know what to propose, right? So there has to be a formation. Uh, sometimes I think... Um, I sometimes I think when we train Catholic school teachers, we, we say like, okay, we, we want to form them, right? We want them to be able to articulate the tradition. But we often mean just by that, like they have to like run through the catechism as quickly as possible and know what's going on. No, we have to learn a re rhetoric of proposal, of invitation. I think this is what Pope Francis means by accompaniment. How do we invite our students to, pro to the wonder that really is in the church, but to do so in such a way that doesn't take away their capacity to think, to ask questions. We journey along with them. We listen to their critiques sometimes. Uh, and yet, so, and, and we don't say, okay, no critiques because they'll turn us off, but we walk with them. But we, we remain this witness, this proposal ourselves in our lives that we think this matters. And if that happens, I'm not saying that every single Catholic uh, student is gonna become part of the church. I think affiliation is really complicated today. And religious life has always been complicated. But I think Catholic schools will have more success if we think about our vocation in this way. 
I, I like that. And um, I'm going to go back to what you said at the beginning, this distrust of institutions, because I people don't trust anything. So I think just building a trustful relationship between teacher and parent and student might really be a, a great place to start. You would think it would just be there, but it's not. We do have to build it from the, from the very beginning, from that first day of school and for every day thereafter in, in order to do to do our work well, in order to really be partners with parents in the education of this of this child. When you talk about um, walking with people and inviting them, the word invitation, I think, is used more now when I read um, things written about the church than ever before, and it is probably Francis. How do you suggest Catholic schools invite people? I like the idea that we we acknowledge and we understand that we are witnessing to our faith and everything we do, because sometimes I think people lose that side of that. But how else can we invite people in to the church? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we can do is um, to, one, attend a practice and particular practice, right? So if your kid's attending a Catholic school, I have a lot of friends whose younger children are in Catholic schools now, and uh, part of the thing is to invite them into the church through the life of the school, right? The school uh, parents in particular care about their kids. And that's why they're sending them to a Catholic school. That's often why they're making very significant sacrifices to send them into the Catholic school. And so we have to invite them in some sense into the church through practice, through involvement in the church, through uh, ritual practice, liturgical practice, practices of prayer and contemplation to treat these, uh, these folks as whole people who have desires and wonders themselves. And so I think that's one thing to do. I think that's, can I just say, I think that's a great idea. I mean, it, it sounds so simple, Tim, but it's not. But if schools were more purposeful and intentional inviting the parents in to, to do those things, to share a prayer, to share a moment of grace, uh, it would go a long way. And I know not everyone will come because that's the first thing things someone would say, well, they won't come, but some will, and that's what matters. So that's I'm right. sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's right. Yeah, I think in, that's part of invitation, you know, um, success is not measured simply by number of human beings. Um, and, you know, that's part of it. Your kids then sort of transform you. Um, the other thing is, I think we have to take on what I call often in, in other contexts, a subjunctive tone. Um, what I mean is, um, a lot of our parents are probably themselves, uh, you know, I think uh, we forget this. If, if I listen to certain often leaders in the church, they talk about millennials as if they're young people. Millennials now are almost like 40 years old, right? They're the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. Their kids are not just in your primary schools, but in your secondary schools at this stage, at least some of them. So one of the things I think we have to do is we have to invite people to the Catholic worldview but not to do so in a kind of heavy handed way. We have to be very subjunctive. Imagine we thought about the world in this way. How would this change X, Y, or Z? Come along with us. We will teach the particulars of theology. We think they're essential. We don't force you into faith, we can't, but we want to invite you to it. So I often think about the importance today of the subjunctive. Let it be this way. Let us imagine this way. Let us think in this way. And that opens up imaginations. 
I like that. And I like to think in what if statements. So what if every school did that? What if every school extended an invitation? What if every school modeled something um, new and different? I mean, what if we did it? What would the results be? I, I think they'd be very positive. So, so I urge our listeners to consider that. So Tim, I have two questions I like to ask every guest. So it's time to ask you those two questions. First of all, what's the best lesson you've ever taught? Oh, gosh. Um, the best lesson I've ever taught um, is, well, I actually uh, just taught it. So it, it's the first, I teach a, a course on the sacrament of marriage at Notre Dame. And I don't know if it's my best, it's my favorite, because it begins to awaken the students to the nature of love. We begin with like a account of what love is and um, reawakening sort of their critical analysis of what love is. And the lesson revolves around starting to analyze commercials and how many of them have been formed to think about themselves only as objects for sexual desire. And you can see the awakening begin to happen that they start to realize that they don't have to think in this way about love and maybe that there's something more beautiful to think about love. I just taught that on Wednesday of this week uh, and it's one of my favorite days because I start to see eyes awaken and that's a great gift as an educator. Yeah, and that's a great topic. Well, we should talk about that sometime because I, I have thoughts about that too. Um, the, uh, the other question I asked is what's the best lesson you've ever learned? Yeah, I think the best lesson I ever learned, uh, and I, it's linked to, um, it, it's linked, I expect, to, to some of what I already said from my teachers. Um, I remember... You know, I was the theology course I took with John Cavazzini changed my life, and we read things that I still don't know if I fully understood. Uh, I I understand now, but I remember that I went into office hours not because I had anything particular to talk about. I was actually rather awkward about the whole thing, but I remember the patience that John took with me at that stage as he sat down with me and. You know, I was asking, how do I make my writing better? He didn't say my writing was bad. I just wanted that attention and uh, as any, I think, student wants. But the patience he took, and I think about that a lot, you know, how important that encounter is one-on-one with a student and how he took my lead and followed me. He was a busy man. I didn't realize it at the time. He's like department chair, running this whole institute. I didn't know these things. But but the, the sort of wisdom of just being one-on-one with a student and attending to them I think that's the most important lesson uh, I've ever been taught. That's a great lesson, especially for Catholic school teachers. I know as parents, we think about one-on-one time with our children. Um, Even though my kids are old, I still think about that. And I wonder if as teachers, we don't understand the impact we can have on with a little one-on-one time with a student. So thank you for affirming that and reminding us of that. So Tim, we've come to the end of our time. I'm just wondering, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, Again, we're looking forward to hearing you in October at at CLS, but do you have any parting words for us, a tease perhaps for what you're going to tell us or talk to us about um, on disaffiliation? Yeah. So I think we have to think about affiliation and disaffiliation alike as not something to terrify us, uh, but uh, a, a necessary response to the situation of the day in which there's an opportunity for us to think anew about what we do. We should see it as a gift, as a problem to understand and to change our of what we do, and not simply as the boogeyman that 
uh, terrifies us. I like that. And again, God provides opportunities. They they don't always look the same. And um, they're not always tied with a big bow, but that doesn't mean they're not there. So thank you for reminding us of that. Our guest today has been Timothy O'Malley from the University of Notre Dame. And Tim, I thank you for taking the time to be with us. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. And um, I welcome you to always listen to the NCA podcast. Thanks and have a great day. 